Sway, go on, move. That's the only way to get away from him. He who rules the world has no power over movement and knows that our body in motion is holy. And only then can you escape him once you've taken off. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to... You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. I'm being very stationary at the moment. And my name is Christian and I am legally obliged to stay at home at the moment. Yes, because first things first, I guess we should say when we record this episode. It's the 24th of April 2020, or as people in the future will refer to it, the first year of the great Corona plague. So, Christian, why are you legally obliged to stay home at the moment? Before was happening, or at least before things got more serious, I wanted to travel. Crazy idea, I know. I spent uh, some time in Norway while the world around me got weirder and wilder and more apocalyptic by uh, every minute, basically. So when I finally decided, unfortunately, to come back to Germany, um, I was put into quarantine. You are not legally obliged to stay home, but why do you? Because it is the right thing to do. Don't expose yourself to the virus. Don't expose others to your bodily fluids and droplets that might carry the virus, even if you know it, maybe you're asymptomatic. So stay the fuck at home. Flatten the curve. And in the distant future, when you're listening to this podcast, you might fondly remember those crazy, crazy days back in 2020. Yes, you might. So we're recording this not in the same room as we usually do. Instead, we're recording this via Discord, an app that previously I only knew as the place where far-right extremists come to talk about their terrorism. So we're finding that it's actually really useful for us right now, and it might even be more professional than usually. Yeah, this is a strange world we're living in right now, a strange situation, but adapt, overcome, survive. And we apologize for any sound issues, but... Hey, we are doing the podcast after months, basically, of not doing it. And without the excuse of the worldwide pandemic, we finally managed to come back together and finally talk about the book that we promised we talk about a, a while back. And remind me, Jonas, which book is that? The book is called Flights by Olga Tukarczuk. Now, Olga Tukarczuk is not yet at least a household name. Many people were surprised when last year she was one of the two winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature. The other one, Peter Handke, we will not talk about, not at all. Isn't happening. Olga Tukarczuk was, as I said, a little bit of a surprise. She was born in 1962 in Poland. She was trained as a psychologist and was working as a therapist for quite a while before she started writing. She had published quite a few books in her native language, Polish, before she became quite successful with the novel we're discussing today, Flights, which actually won her the Man Booker Prize, the international version of it, and is also seen as one of the main reasons why she got the Nobel Prize. However, that decision is not without controversy, especially in her home, Poland, She's often seen as something of a controversial figure, at least by the nationalist government, who have accused her of being anti-Polish, because she often writes about Poland and about Polish history from a more postmodern and often critical perspective. The novel Flights, well, I called it a novel because that's what it says on the cover, but I'm not quite sure whether you could call it that, because it isn't a traditional novel in the sense of having 
a coherent plot or structure, through line or story. It is more a collection of loose bits of narrative, you could say. However, they are not completely random. There are several stories in this. There's a story of a man whose wife and young son disappear while they're on holiday in Croatia. There's a story of a first-person narrator who travels around the world. There are several historical stories, such as the story of the Dutch anatomist Philippe Verheyen, or there is the story of how Chopin's heart is smuggled back into Poland. All these stories aren't really connected, but there are some things that appear in one story that then turn up in another story. For example, Dr. Blau finds a preserved arm in liquid with a very distinctive tattoo on it, and then later on, Verheyen's daughter sees someone with that tattoo, implying that it is his arm that we have already seen in a jar centuries later. So there are these connections. Some of them are literal, some of them are direct, some of them are more thematic. And the themes of the novel include things such as bodies, preserving bodies, preserving our bodies, preserving others' bodies, preserving medical curiosities, but also travel. And, well, that is certainly something that is very much on our mind right now, as we're not really allowed or supposed to travel. But uh, also, if we travel, it is a lot harder, as you learned through first-hand experience. I'm still learning that at the moment, since the borders are closed. But it's interesting that you mentioned bodies and the preservation of bodies as an important theme and topic throughout the book. And that's actually something I would like to talk about. I was kind of surprised because reading about the book, it seemed to be that most commentators focused on the notion of, of traveling. And there is obviously a lot of traveling. There's a lot of musings about travel, about home, about strangers, and about going abroad and all that. The original title of the novel in Polish is Bieguni, which is the name of a religious sect that actually believes in what I mentioned in the quote in the beginning of the episode, that you have to move in order for the devil not to catch you. So even that gives traveling a new meaning, basically. But bodies and the notion of us staying in these weird things falling apart, parts of our bodies being cut off and being preserved, and the obsession with bodies, that is something that I found quite interesting. And at first glance, I couldn't really associated associated with the notion of traveling but what i really found interesting is that the body in the book is often seen as basically something to show off you mentioned the tattoo that dr blau um, sees and how he is obsessed with body parts and basically obsessed with preserving bodies and there are some very clear and explicit parallels to uh, Heidelberg's very own uh, Gunther von Hagen. and yes, his our homeboy! And I think that is a connection where we can connect the notion of traveling, of moving, of having to move with the notion of the body. Because traveling seems to be a countermeasure against mortality to a certain degree. You have to move the body in order for it to not be still and then fall apart. I mean, that is... As a, a very, very vague notion that you can only get from some of these things. But the body as something that can be co-opted, that can be put on display. For example, the heartbreaking letters that the daughter of Angelo Soliman writes to the Austrian emperor, who basically had the dead body of her father on display as some sort of exotic attraction. Curio. Jonas, what, what do you think? Why this this almost morbid fascination with body parts and dead bodies on display. 
That's really interesting because that was a part of the book that I could really identify with in a strange way. Okay, um, okay. Um, I'm calling the cops now. <laughs> There's one detail where uh, Dr. Blau, who we've already mentioned, wishes for a skeleton for his birthday as a child. But for my fifth birthday, I asked for a skeleton as well. And my grandmother gave it to me very eagerly, thinking that this would mean that I would pursue a career in medicine. It just meant that I became a goth later on. <laughs> yes, I am definitely calling the cops now. I think this fascination with bodies and putting them on display is something very morbid, yes, but also something to do with beauty. And one of the narrators, a first-person narrator, who shares some biographical details with Tukarczuk, being Polish, having studied psychology at university, maybe she's a she's a fantasy version of Tukarczuk, or maybe she, she's not related to the author at all. So this person says that she has an obsession with everything that is diseased, everything that is out of the ordinary, everything that is somehow wrong and monstrous about our bodies, and everything that is weird or macabre, you could say. In those narrations, definitely, that sort of justifies why they're all about that. But generally, in every narration, beauty is always associated with death. And I think those are obsessions that we have in our culture, at the very least since the Baroque era, whenever we see something beautiful, we also think about how it is going to decline. Or sometimes we even think that the signs of decline and rot are beautiful in themselves, such as golden autumn leaves. Beautiful, but definitely a sign of death. So that's something I could really identify with. I think that's an interesting thing to talk about this weirdness. And I think another theme is how this weirdness is, is treated, basically. For example, one larger story within the whole thing is the story of a young Russian woman who basically escapes from her dreary everyday life and meets actually one of these biaguni and tries to kind of live this life at the margins of society. In the end, she gives up. And she has to return to her normal existence. But the weirdness as something that is abhorred by the mainstream, by the system of society, but that is something beautiful, that is something to be celebrated, that notion is definitely there in the stories. And maybe if that beauty is dead and put on display in a weird way, Tokarczuk or still manages to find the beauty you mentioned. That it's sad that the overbearing system kind of kills the, the, the weird parts of society or of human existence. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And that doesn't mean that you cannot admire them in whatever form they appear. That story you already mentioned of the, the Russian woman escaping her mundane life of marriage and childcare uh, was one that really spoke to me. It, it, it was so interesting to see this story. And it is then sort of repeated uh, because then just after this, we learned that the woman who seemingly disappeared on the Croatian island while she and her husband were on holiday actually just went away. And it is sort of implied, or at least I sort of thought, oh, maybe she also just had to escape, much like the Russian woman who just uh, stayed on the metro one night instead of going home to her husband and ill child. I thought that story was really interesting because I'm very used to seeing these sorts of stories about escape from a mundane marital existence from a male perspective. Think of the Pina Colada song, for example. Who can uh, forget that pinnacle of Western <laughs> narrative civilization? But still, it was an interesting twist on a story that I had heard before. I felt that that was very much the sort of essence of the book, especially because then there is also this idea about having to move constantly because otherwise the devil catches you. I think that is articulated most clearly in this story and sort of sums up a lot of what the book is about. 
one other thing that is part of that story is the um, young woman connecting with the outsiders that she would usually never deign to, to talk with. And that is an, another topic that occurs time and time again, that these mortal bodies that we have, well, they're longing for company. It doesn't have to be like Dr. Blau, whose uh, morbid fascination with the female body is reduced to taking photographs of vulvas and then looking at them in a more scientific way. Yikes. Yeah, I would like to talk about sociability, or maybe rather the lack thereof. Because I don't know how you felt, but when I read this book, at first I really hated it. And a large part of that was that it seemed so fucking antisocial. Let, let me explain what I mean by that. The first person narrator who shares some biographical details with Tokarczuk, and I know that it is an issue of mine that I tend to project too much onto the author and too much assume that the first person narrator who shares biographical details is the author more than I should. But anyway, I felt that this person's attitude towards other people was very callous. At one point, she goes through a museum and looks at all the exhibits there, all the bodies. And the only problem she basically thinks of is, oh, what if these people were Roman Catholics? Because for them, it's really important to have their body intact so that they can uh, just go up to heaven on the Day of Judgment. As a trainee museum curator at the moment, I know that there's a lot of problems with human remains in museums because <laughs> a lot of human you remains... You don't in... say. What? Well, a lot of these human remains in museums were taken against the will of the people whose body they were. They are often people of color, people who were colonized, who were killed and whose bodies were taken. So when I read this part of the book all about museums and the Wunderkammer collections of old princes and what they collected as curios to amuse themselves, and then there was no mention of the social aspect of it all, that sort of irked me. You could say that the book sort of makes up for it with these letters of Josephine Solomon to uh, the emperor asking for her father's body to be given a proper burial. But there's some other aspects that I also find really, yeah, really outdated. Even though this is one of the most contemporary books that we have discussed on this podcast, even though this is relatively young writer breaking into the establishment, sort of mixing things up, I found this book to be incredibly outdated in a way that it just does not address social concerns at all. One example for this would be uh, her chapter on trains for cowards, where she says there are certain overnight trains that you can take and then you can sleep in the train and then you reach your destination by morning. Everything that in the year 2020, when just last year we had the Fridays for Future movement and we have people really cutting back on their flying. It's kind of outdated, kind of old-fashioned. And you sort of think, yeah, yeah, this, this is a very sort of early 2000s book, isn't it? It is. It was written in 2007 originally. That, that, that is very much what it reads as. Because not only is there no consideration of the environment, there's also no consideration for people who have to travel, people who don't choose to lead an itinerant life. Let me ask you something. Why doesn't the Lord of the Rings deal with the issue of the working orc? <laughs> Okay, I see what you're saying. Why does it have to address every issue that comes up in the themes that it addresses, you mean? I don't mean to be too presumptuous here. I absolutely hear your argument. Um, if the book wants to kind of give this grand picture of a well globalized world in some sort of way, then these aspects should be maybe or could be considered. But I think one thing that the book does quite well is portraying that this is all still about 
very singular perspectives. That is a valid point if it is about singular perspectives. And maybe I think I know why I have this issue with it, because the blurb on the back of my edition of it starts with flights is a novel about travel in the 21st century. And it just isn't because it is a novel about very specific forms of travel for very specific groups of people in an early part of the 21st century before the mid 2010s. And that is valid. You can write that book. And you can write about those very singular perspectives, but it's not very all-encompassing and it's not its not what I was promised. But I guess maybe that was not to talk to herself writing this blurb on the back of the book. So fair point. What do you think? Because then there's other things as well. The only person who really seems to have a conscience, who seems to care about others, is an animal rights activist who is presented in a really mocking way, in a really ridiculous way, sort of like, what? Why does she care about that? That is so silly. And that also really irked me. It's the same first-person narrator. Yeah, maybe that's just the narrator's perspective, but there's nothing to counteract that. I would disagree to a certain respect here, because what I think the book is not interested in is giving you this simple answer, this very clear moralist judgment of like, oh, this is good, this is bad. I agree that, especially in the beginning, when it's mainly the first-person narrator, you sometimes get this feeling that her attitude seems to be kind of removed from everyone else, almost cool, sarcastic at times. The thing that I get, especially later when, for example, she stumbles across that weird conference by travel psychologists in the airport, is that she is just one perspective and is presented in in a way that makes clear that it's not the whole truth. What all of these perspectives and what all of these things seem to have in common is this paradox of having two sides. Like I said, Dr. Blau, who is appreciating female beauty by sleeping with women and, and taking photographs of their genitals. Wow. There's another story uh, of a Polish woman, again, kind of some parallels to Tukarczuk, who's traveling home to Poland in order to meet her first love and basically to kill him because he's fatally ill. And that is a, a weird story where you're not quite sure what to think, oh, is this good? Is this bad? This perspective is kind of callous at times. This is not something that builds up to a grand picture of human society and how despite all our differences and despite our isolation, traveling can connect us all and or something like that. No, it, it, it shows that humans are weird, human bodies are weird, and probably there's nothing behind all this traveling and living at all. So to paraphrase what you just said, it's a lot of individual parts that are individually interesting, but the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Depending on how you see less, you could still get something out of it, but it doesn't tell you necessarily what that is. If you're looking for a grand moral, go read the Bible. But even that has a lot of different parts that not necessarily add up. Fair point. We've already talked a lot about how disjointed the book is, that it is split up into these different sort of strands of narrative that are somehow connected, but not really. So let's talk about the style, because I have to confess, I had a really, really hard time getting into this book. I tried to start reading it several times and failed. Um, eventually, I actually downloaded the audiobook and that sort of gave me the initial push that I needed. And then I managed to actually read a bit of it and sort of alternate it with the audiobook. But the style was really off-putting to me at first. I also had problems getting into it. After a while, I actually got kind of sucked in. I, I still had this feeling of almost 
regret sometimes because some of the sections are written quite beautifully. Some of them are actually quite suspenseful and then they come to an end and something else gets brought up and you're like, no, I don't want to read about this. I want to continue reading about this other thing. Exactly my experience as well. Once I was in, I was really in, at least for some parts and really not for some other parts. One thing that I would like to point out is the excellent translation work by Jennifer Croft. Now, obviously, I don't know any Polish, so I can't comment on the quality of the original. But at least her style of translation, which often is focused on this kind of weird cultural divide between Poland and the rest of the world, comes across as, as quite natural without seeming too academic. So I think the translation was really, really well done. A really great point, because I think this is the first time that we talk about a book that is written originally in a language that neither of us speak at all. Yeah. Uh, so Jennifer Croft, we should mention, and just a general policy for us, acknowledge your translators because Croft did amazing work on this because I'm sure this was a tough job to translate. Maybe I'm a bit of a philistine when I say this, but I would have liked more cohesion and plot. So this already sounds a little bit like our judgments. So Jonas, what would be your highlight and lowlight of this book or your, I don't know, Chopin's heart and photographed vulva, depending on your taste, which one is which? It's funny you should mention it because the photographed vulvas are actually my low light. I didn't like the first person narrator. I didn't like her callousness in going through a museum, but I hated Dr. Blau and his observation. Oh, every vulva looks slightly different and they kind of look like orchids. Really? Wow. So deep. I fucking hated him. And then when his story ended and we got a letter from Josephine Solomon, I was very happy. And then we've got them returned to Dr. Blau. I wanted to throw the book across the room and say, fuck no, I, I don't want to hear about Dr. Blau. Again. Go away. So that was the low light, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was. My low light is, as mentioned at the beginning, there is something about it that makes it hard to get into. It's this relatively straightforward story of the first-person narrator, and while I don't find her as callous as you do, there's something very dry about it. I don't know. It, it makes it hard to get into, and it also doesn't prepare you for the stories that come afterwards. It's not a good beginning, and I think it might be something that almost keeps you from reading. My highlight would be the, almost at the very end of the book. So, spoiler alert, I guess, if you can spoil this book, I don't know. Where the death of an elderly professor is described. He dies from a hemorrhage in his brain after a fall on a cruise ship. It is described as a rising tide of blood, first founding the plains of Europe where he was born and grew up, then flooding the libraries where his books are, and then ultimately flooding Greece and flooding Athens, which is a town that he knows intimately. Then there's a mention that uh, the last thing to descend into the red waves is the statue of the goddess, and she was standing next to his bed when they unplugged the machines, keeping and it's not sure whether she he refers to the goddess or his wife and that was very moving very heartbreaking almost but also very morbid but in a very lyrical way i think my highlight was actually the longer story we already mentioned about the young russian woman which is i think actually also called flights and it is almost in the center of the book, and it is one of the longer narratives. And I think there you kind of understand what the book is about in a, in a much more direct and emotional way as well. And it's, it's really heartbreaking in the end. And if the novel, in all its disjointedness, has a heart, then it is that narrative. Since it is our job to talk about um, whether it's worth reading or not, Jonas, is this book by a Nobel Prize winner worth reading? You know, even though I said everything I said, and even though I'm not really sure I 
liked all of it, there was still enough in it that I liked or even loved. And talking about it now, I realized, oh, there are so many parts that I actually really liked. So I would say yes, but cautiously. It's difficult to get into, but once you've sort of crossed that threshold, it really keeps paying off. And because it is written in these short bursts, you can basically read a bit of it at a time and then put it down and come back to it, which might be the best way to read it. It's interesting because I liked it more than you did, I think. And I can definitely see its merits and its weird alienating beauty. But I would probably say you don't have to read it because I think many of the topics it addresses are topics that often come up in other postmodern disjointed books. Some of the vignettes are really worth reading and Overall, it is thought-provoking and, I think, a good book. But I don't think it is necessary to read this as a kind of way of understanding why Olga Tokarczuk got the Nobel Prize. That being said, I actually want to read more by her. And I think some of the more historical novels that seem to be a little bit more coherent could be a good way to continue. I mean, I really like the historical sections of this, so I agree. That sounds very intriguing. So a sort of half-hearted endorsement from me and a half-hearted non-endorsement from you. But what else should our listeners read now that they're stuck indoors? Uh, a lot of things, I guess. <laughs> read whatever you can get your hands on. There are actually two books that I would like to recommend that I had to think of immediately after finishing Flights. One of them, the author is even name-dropped in Flights, is The Trouble with Being Born by EMC Oran, famous nihilist philosopher with a very, very dark and pessimistic view on humanity. He also writes these very short aphorisms, these vignettes about human nature. But while he is very dark, he's never without hope. He's never without some sort of even faith. If you are in the mood for some dark thoughts, in addition to all the darkness around you, then read Siaran. This is a book that I was given as a goth teenager and did not read it because I was too afraid of how pessimistic it was. Well, he's no Thomas Ligotti, so there you go. The other one is the more optimistic version of Flights, maybe. And for Jonas, uh, if you want something that is a little bit more coherent and having a little bit more of a clear moral, you might say, I would definitely recommend David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which takes up a lot of the same topics, which yeah. also has different narratives that are much clearer connected that are almost sometimes a little bit too obvious, you might say, but that are also much more emotional. So if you feel less like alienation and more like a skeptical but still heart-rending version of human connections, then David Mitchell's books in general, but Cloud Atlas obviously in particular, I for you. I also have two recommendations. One that I have just started to read, so I'm not quite sure about it yet. The other one I read a long time ago, so also not quite sure about it yet first the one I read a long time ago. I would like to recommend a novel that is also about bodies and about coming to terms with your body and uh, it is also a lot about how weird our bodies are and how they can be and how that affects you. And that is Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. On the one hand, I had to think of this book because it is also a lot about bodies and the experience of living in one. However, I also had to think of this book because Flights reminded me so much of the kinds of books that I tried to read as a teenager and that sort of repulsed me that I didn't want to read because I just couldn't understand why they were supposed to be great. And Middlesex is the first work of great, quote-unquote, grown-up, quote-unquote, literature that I remember reading where I really got it. It has a very good plot, but it is also just this grand family tale. You 
getting in to this story very easily. Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. Another book I want to recommend is the one that I just started reading a couple of days ago, a book that dips in and out of time and sort of has these recurrences, these connections throughout time. And that is Am grünen Strand der Spree by Hans Scholz. It starts out as some people meeting in a bar just after the Second World War and discussing their experiences. But then they also read a diary of someone. And then there's other historical tales of artists and of people traveling throughout Germany. And there is some sort of idea of recurrence coming back again and again. It is very interesting. So far, I really like it. And I can recommend you check out Am Grünstrand der Spree by Hans Scholz. However, if you have any other recommendations, if you think we are idiots and we should definitely have talked about Peter Handke, why not tell us in one of the many different ways you can contact us? You can write to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. We have a Facebook page that you can like. And you can find us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get access to our bonus episodes on adaptations of the books that we discussed this month because there's no adaptation of flights. We're releasing a mini-sode on Justin Curzel's Macbeth. If you give us $10 a month, you get access to both that and our new series, Slosh Shakespeare, where we where we get drunk and discuss the works of the bar. And come back very soon in May when we will be talking about, well, Christian, what is our next topic? I don't know. I'm I'm really not sure. I'm, I'm, I need to get out of this room. I, I need to get out of isolation, of quarantine. Uh, it's almost like I'm a woman in the 19th century who is slowly getting turned mad by the patriarchy. And do you have a wallpaper on your wall? Is it the yellow wallpaper? No, it's not. But we'll read the yellow wallpaper by Charles Perkins Gilman. Really? We'll be reading a wallpaper? Well, I hope there's some interesting articles in it. Wop, 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 wop. Sorry, my neighbor's playing the trombone. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Jonas needs to read the Bible. Y'all need a Bible. <laughs>